0: If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to John chapter 11. John 11 is where we will spend some time together this morning. I think Easter speaks a word into our hearts that nothing else really can. Which is probably why we make such a big deal out of this celebration. Easter proclaims a message of hope that nothing else in all the world is able to proclaim to us. Because it announces, as we sang of it, announces the death of death. And it calls us into the life that we have been created and made for by our Creator. That's what Easter does. We spend the weekend of each year, this particular weekend, remembering the death, the burial, and the resurrection because they are for us as human beings and as followers of Jesus the most important events and realities in the universe. I'm so struck by that. I was struck by that in a unique way such that whatever sermon I had ready to go went out the window last night because the, the depth of what this means just it didn't feel that we were addressing that. And so I want to announce to you Based on God's word, this, that the resurrection of Jesus is so significant because the reality of death is so sure. The reason that the resurrection of Jesus is so significant to us is because the reality of death in this world is so sure, it's so painful, it's so unavoidable. And I think that the light of Easter shines brightest into our hearts when we see the the darkness, when we're forced to to reckon with the the fact that someday, something will kill all of us. It could be some sudden tragedy that rips our breath from us. It could be a disease that slowly debilitates us. Or we could just go to sleep one night and never wake up. We know that it's appointed. It is determined for every one of us to die. Do you feel the weight of that? Maybe that feels like a downer here, but do you feel the weight of, of death for you and for others? That everyone around us, all the people that surround our lives, are making plans and pursuing dreams. And some consciously and some unconsciously are not reckoning with death with final judgment that is to come. They're the people that, that are beside us as we drive to work. They're the people that are with us when we're walking through the grocery store. We don't really notice their faces, but they are in the same boat that we are all in. They're the people that you go to work with every day. mortal people who will die. They are our neighbors. We wave to them when we leave the house in the morning. And we wave to them when we pull into our driveway at night. They are, each one of us, this church family that we love and that we invest our lives in. They are the people that sit around the table with us each evening, the people that we share our stories, that we share our lives with. They are are the, the friend that we have, that we can tell anything to. They are the spouse that we sleep beside. It's the face that you look at in the mirror. Each of us will physical bodies will eventually fail and a few days after that they will be either put into the ground or burned to fit into some small earth and it's that deep true reality a reality that we don't like to think about but it's that reality that is at the heart of what makes this day and the reality of the resurrection a day of rejoicing the resurrection of jesus is so significant And so joyful because the reality of death and the sorrow that it brings is so sure. Not long before Jesus' own death and resurrection, he met a family. A family that he knew well. Friends of his who had faced an unexpected death and would then see an unexpected miracle. It's in John 11. It's familiar to us. It's one of the most beautiful Stories, I think, in the Gospels. It's the story of the raising of Lazarus. And I think that the beauty of this story rests in just how real and how raw it is. So we find it here in in John 11. And at the beginning of John 11, Jesus has received word that Lazarus, his friend, is sick. But we notice that as we read through it, that Jesus then purposely delays going. To see his friend Lazarus, much to the disciples' confusion, they're not sure what's going on in this situation. And so we pick up the story in John 11, verse 17, as Jesus is heading towards Bethany, where Lazarus and his sisters were. It says in John 11:17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, and his hands and his feet were bound with linen strips, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him, and let him go. As we consider this scene, this, this story true story that's that's painted for us, we, we catch a glimpse, I think, of the emotions that are a part of every death and those that are a part of that death. The most obvious emotion first is sorrow. Sorrow. We see that in verse 19, that many had gathered and they were there to console Martha and Mary because their brother had died. And they obviously were upset about this. They were filled with sorrow. his death seems to have been some sort of a shock. And and we would assume that Lazarus was a younger man. That he was not supposed to die. Not as young as as he did. This wasn't supposed to happen. We see their sorrow also in verse 33 where we see that Mary is weeping. And then Jesus himself weeps at the death of his friend. Such sorrow. So many Tears, and and tears are a part of of every death, including this one. We're not surprised by it. We're not surprised to see it here, and we're not surprised to see it when we face the death of those that we love. Sorrow is part of death. Sorrow is a part of our world. Much of the pain that is caused by death brings sorrow into our world. And death seems so all-pervasive. If we pause and think about it, it seems to reach into every part of our lives. Not just the times when we have to go to a funeral, but rather it meets us almost everywhere in our lives. Death fills our world. There's this beautiful tree in our front yard. It's a river birch, if you know what that tree is. It, it sort of towers above our house on the corner of our, our front walk, and the branches kind of reach down like a, like a willow tree. Love Willow trees, and it kind of reminds me of that. And a river birch has this wonderful bark. It's it's like a um, like someone with a giant plane came and, and shaved the 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 bark a little bit. And it sort of curls and is is coming off. It's this beautiful tree, very alive at this point. So much water actually came that this this river birch is soaking up water. And it had so much water, but it had nowhere for it to go. And the, the, the trunk and all the branches were just dripping water because of all this rain that we've had recently. But the reality for us is that in the near future, we are going to have to cut this tree down. It is already showing signs of death. My father-in-law said it's it's probably gonna die soon. He knows trees pretty well. He said, Well, how long do they usually live? He said, about thirty years. So well, how old is this one? About 29, say. (laughs) And that's the reality. It's showing signs of death. and, And one day, it will be reduced to a stump. That when I walk outside my front door, I will be sad to see a stump. And to remember this tree that was there. Death just pervades. Like, even in something like a tree. Some of you have dealt with similar, maybe small deaths that you can think about. Some that small things like that are deeper than just a tree. Maybe you've, you've faced the death of a pet. And that sorrow, that ache isn't something to stop. at. That's, that's a, a deep reminder of our broken world and that death reigns in this place. There is much sorrow in different kinds of death. There's sorrow in the death of a dream. Something that you wanted to happen so badly and you Come to the place of having to accept that it never will happen. It's never going to be a reality. Sometimes there's death of a marriage, death of a friendship. There's the death of innocence in children as they are faced with the cruelty of our world. And as with Mary and Martha and Jesus, there's death of loved ones and death of friends. We've all been touched by that in our lives. There are those who die too young. There are those who die before they've even been born. There are those who are cut down by disease. There are people we know who are so overwhelmed by the sorrow of life that they choose to take their own life. There are those who drown the sorrow of life until they drown themselves. It's a state that's facing people throughout our state and our country as drug overdoses continue to rise. The eastern part of our state is an epidemic and there are those who just die in old age, which is still a thing that is filled with sorrow. Psalm 90, verse 10, faces this reality head on. It says, The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Toil, trouble, sorrow, sorrow, These are the things that come with death. And death is is all too real. It brings sorrow into our world, and it brings a sorrow that we are all very, very, very familiar with. It's here in this scene. We can see it in Martha and Mary and Jesus. We can see it in our own lives. Not only do we see sorrow associated with death, but I think we also see confusion. Confusion. Verse 21, Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, My brother would not have died. You wonder if Martha and Mary had had that conversation because Mary says the same thing in verse 32. She says, what if you had been here? My brother would not have died. You wonder if they had said to one another, if Jesus had been here, Lazarus would still be alive. Even the crowd gets in on this in verse 37. They say, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind Man also have kept this man from dying? I think these are all variations on the question in the face of death, the question of where were you, Jesus? You were supposed to be here, Jesus. Where where were you when all of this came on us? There's the acknowledgement of the, the power of Jesus in this, that the faith that if he had been there, he could have cured. Lazarus, and we see earlier in the chapter, he could have been there, but he wasn't, he purposely delayed coming so that Lazarus would die, I think death always brings confusion and questions, no matter who we are, we ask variations on the question, where were you Jesus, things like why, why now? Why would this happen now, God? Why in this way? Why didn't you heal her? Why didn't we catch this earlier so that we could deal with it? Where were you, Jesus? If you had been here, you could have saved him. I don't think those questions have to be cynical. Those questions just rise in our, in our hearts because death is so painful. In fact, many of those questions acknowledge Jesus' power. If, Jesus, you had stepped into the situation, you could have stopped what was happening. These questions acknowledge that God could have done something. He could have stopped the tragedy. He could have restored this person's health. Health. But, But he didn't. And they're dead. And so we're confused. He could have stopped situations in our life, but he didn't. And now they're there. What do we do? I think that confusion and those questions can lead us to a third reaction that we see here, which is anger. There's got to be at least some anger behind these questions that are asked, though I think it's tempered by faith. And I imagine being the disciples and hearing those questions and knowing full well that Jesus could have been there but chose not to, that they could have been there before Lazarus died, they had the time, and if I'm one of the disciples and you start to hear Mary and Martha asking Jesus these questions, then you might start to think that they had good reason to be angry with Jesus. That Jesus, if we would have moved when we found out, we could have solved this problem, and you didn't. You chose to stay. Maybe there is justification for that anger, they might wonder. But I don't think it's just anger from Martha and Mary, but there is actually anger from Jesus, The words that are translated greatly troubled are in fact better understood to, to say that Jesus was indignant. That's in my footnotes, it says that Jesus was indignant. You see that in verse 33, Jesus saw her leaving, and the Jews who had come with her also leaving, he was deeply moved, he was indignant, he was outraged, he was angry. Verse 38 is the same phrase. He was indignant. He was outraged. He was angry. What was he angry at? What was Jesus so mad about? D.A. Carson gives us two options. Here's what he says. Some think that Jesus is moved by their grief and is consequently angry with the sin, sickness, and death in this fallen world that wreaks so much havoc and generates so much sorrow. Others think that the anger is directed at the unbelief itself. The men and women before, before him were grieving like pagans, like the rest of men who have no hope. Profound grief at such bereavement is natural enough. Grief that degenerates to despair that pours out its loss as if there were no resurrection is an implicit denial of that resurrection. The person was allowed to say that it could be both in Jesus' mind. Though it would seem to me that that first one would weigh more heavily. Here, prior to the resurrection of Jesus himself, there may have been confusion about what happened after death. But there is no confusion about how much pain that causes. And the anger of Jesus and all of the anguish caused by death would be tied to the fact that this was not how things were supposed to be. This was not the way that God had created the world to be. Imagine with me a bride on her wedding day. And it's moments before the wedding march is supposed to be played, and she's supposed to come down the the center aisle. But maybe she's in one of these old churches where, in order to get back to the back of the church, she's going to have to go outside, come around the side of the church, and then be able to come in the back doors to be able to go down that center aisle. And imagine with me this, she goes outside, and she's walking down, Beside the the building, the church building, and, and it's, uh, it's a brick paved old path. And her shoe gets caught, and she stumbles and slips, and falls to the side, and lands just face plant in a mud puddle. See that picture? Her dress is just totally ruined. The ceremony. What do you do at this point? I just hear her saying, maybe in out loud or at least in her heart, "This is not how this was supposed to go. This was not the plan. This is totally wrong." Understanding God's sovereignty, understanding God's perfect will, we know that sin's entrance into the world was not something that caught God by surprise. So we can hold to that truth, but we can also say, in another sense, that. When sin did come into the world, and when sin did enter the world, that it was not the way that things were supposed to be. That death was not supposed to reign supremely in God's world. There was not to be so most. There was there was not supposed to be so much sorrow. There was not supposed to be so much confusion and anger in this world. The the white dress, as it were, of creation was was stained, and it wasn't supposed to be that. And Jesus sees all of these things and he despises death. He hates death and everything that is brought into God's good world because this was not the way that it was supposed to be. And even us, we feel this family, not as perfectly as Jesus, but we hate death. The March for Life that happened around our, our country recently at its core, you can say it was about anything and everything. I think it was about anger at death. It flows in my mind from statements like, I shouldn't have to be afraid to go to school. Or statements like, people shouldn't die in school. We shouldn't be afraid of dying. I agree. But more than simply, I shouldn't be afraid to die in school, I shouldn't be afraid to die anywhere. That's what my heart really wants. I don't want to be afraid of death, period. I don't want to die. We hate death. And everyone in this world hates death in part because of the image of God in us that says, this is not the way things are supposed to be. This is not what I was created for. I was not created to die. I was given a soul that is to live forever in the presence of God. This is not the way things are supposed to be. And yet, it would seem that we can't do anything about it. That we just sort of have to walk through life with this stain all over us, right? We're at the back of the church. We don't have a choice. Got to go in. Got to do something. Even in the happiest moments of life, death sort of hangs over us. And yet, sorrow and confusion and anger—these are all part of the response to death. But I don't think that's all that's here in John 11. We also find. It all- There is hope in the midst of this scene. Martha is the one who speaks of this hope to Jesus. I'm thankful Martha gets to say these words. I feel like she gets a bad rap so often. But look at Martha's faith. Even in the midst of her confusion, she holds to the hope of resurrection of the last day, a time when the dead will rise again. She believes that. And Jesus says to her, boldly in that moment, I am that resurrection, and I am the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. I think that no matter what the context is, or the individuals involved, or what belief system they have or don't have, there is almost always, in the face of death, some sort of hope. Even if that hope has no firm grounding whatsoever. It could be just some hope that this is not all that there is, and that there, or, or that, that that it's a hope actually that this is all that there is, that there's nothing to follow, there's no judgment. Yesterday was the funeral of the famous scientist and the self-professed atheist Stephen Hawking, and he said at one point in his life, he said this: "No one created the universe, and no one directs our fate." This leads me to a profound realization. That there probably is no heaven and no afterlife either. We have this one life to appreciate the grand design of the universe. And for that, I am extremely grateful. Stephen Hawking and probably his family found hope in the fact that they thought there's nothing to follow. They had a hope that was rooted probably in his legacy. And the thought that while nothing material or immaterial about him would endure his his contribution to the world would continue. People find hope in that. Because in the face of death, you've got to find some hope, right? Others find hope in a vague sense of God's goodness. God is good. But, you know, everyone sort of goes to be with God. Or a, a vague sense of their own goodness. Yeah, I've been a decent enough person. I think everything will be okay in me. But wherever it's found, people have to find hope in the face of death. They they will grasp for it because our hearts and our souls, in the face of something so tragic, have to find hope. I've seen this in so many times where I've called in to preside over a funeral. I don't know what the person believes. But everyone still has hope because they can't despair in that moment. They've got to hold on to something. This is true throughout our society. And the church actually is a place where people still seem to turn. Completely irreligious people at the most significant moments in their life want the church involved. When people get married, they want to get married in a church because they want some sort of gravitas to it. And especially when someone passes away, they want a priest, they want a pastor, they want someone to come and be a part of this who has some sort of belief. You know, even Stephen Hawking's funeral, they read Ecclesiastes three, "There's a time for everything." Isn't that interesting? Because we're all looking for hope, even in the, in the face of death. Especially, we're trying to find hope. And so, brothers and sisters, this is why we celebrate the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is so significant because the reality of death is so sure. And the resurrection of Jesus is so significant because it alone offers us the most sure and certain hope in the face of a reality of death that we all face. But let's be totally honest about it, okay? The resurrection does not eliminate sorrow. At least not yet, there is still much weeping in this world even within the church but we have a sure and a certain hope that while weeping will last for a night, joy comes in the morning that there will be a day when every tear will be wiped from our eyes that we can grieve, but we can grieve as people who have hope the resurrection doesn't eliminate sorrow at least not yet, the resurrection doesn't eliminate confusion at least not yet we still wonder why things happen the way they do. Why doesn't God intervene like we want him to? Why does he seem so late in his arrival? Why does he not take care of all of the nastiness of evil in this world? We say over and over again, if you had been there, Jesus, if you had been here, Jesus, you could have done something. Couldn't Jesus have done something in this? Couldn't God have stopped this? But for all that we don't know, we do know that he delays for some reason. We can't know the specifics, but I know one, it's that so he might be glorified. He tells us that in verse 4, when Jesus heard about Lazarus' death, he said to the disciples, the illness does not lead to death, it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And he says to Martha, when she tells him, no, don't open it, it's going to stink he said, did I not tell you, in verse 40, that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? In our sorrow and in our confusion, God can say that our light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We can trust that God is working all things for his glory. That if we've been transformed to see that that's what we are created for, then we're good with that. I don't like it necessarily, but I can accept that this is for God's very glory, even though I don't understand it. The resurrection doesn't eliminate confusion, but it does give us some answers. The resurrection doesn't eliminate anger, at least not yet, because our hearts still struggle to see God's purposes or to agree with what He's doing. And we can even rightfully hate all of the destruction that death is brought into this world. We can cry out with the people in Revelation that say, how long, O Lord? How long until justice comes? How long until death is gone forever? So the resurrection, if we're honest, does not eliminate sorrow, confusion, or anger at the death that fills our because The resurrection of Jesus has not eliminated death. At least not yet. At least not completely. The resurrection of Jesus has conquered death, but it has not eliminated it in this present world right now. But Jesus has conquered death because Jesus has conquered sin. Jesus is a really great physician. Some physician might say if you're feeling ill in some way, they're going to, they'll treat your symptoms. I'll give you a, a drug or I'll give you something that'll help you to stop feeling the pain that you're feeling. But they don't deal with the root cause. Jesus gets to the root cause. He doesn't deal with symptoms. He goes to the cause I and mean, he doesn't just make us feel better by masking our pain. Religion is not an opiate for the people that sort of dulls our senses so that we just don't have to feel scared or sad. Rather, Jesus comes and deals with what is it, the root cause of death, because the root cause of death is sin. First Corinthians 15, 56 says that the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but that God gives us victory through Jesus. And he does it because Jesus has fulfilled the law. He has come and he perfectly He was perfect and completely righteous. And so therefore he's able to die as our substitute, to die to pay for our sins because he had no sin of his own to pay for. So he calls us to believe. He doesn't call us to do good works. He calls us to trust that he has done everything. And if we believe that we are united, if we believe in him, then we are united to him. We are united in his death so that we die to sin and we die to its consequences. We are united in his resurrection so that we are able to walk in his ways, in new life, and so that we will be raised with him on the last day. This is the good news of this weekend, that we can be forgiven, that we can rest in the reality that Jesus has conquered death. So for the follower of Jesus, we want to be honest. There's still sorrow. There is still confusion. There is still even anger what happens in our world. Don't, don't deny that. There can be a temptation to feel like we have to come to a service like this one and leave all of our sorrow and all of our confusion and all of our anger in the car before we walk through the doors because they know that it's Resurrection Sunday and we got to be happy. And then if your pastor reaches some or sermon about death on Easter, like it is. But if we just deny that, it, it really is of no help to us. If we think that the resurrection and and coming on Easter means that we just always have to be happy and deny the the difficulty of this world, then we actually will miss the real heart of what Jesus has done. I hope that this isn't depressing. (laughs) I hope hope what you hear is that, that life is still hard, and life is still difficult, and life is still troubling. The message of the gospel isn't believe in Jesus and everything's going to be okay. That's not the good news of the gospel. That's not the good news of the resurrection. The truth of the resurrection is that Jesus says we have hope. And not just a hope that we're sort of grasping for, but this real, solid hope. A hope that is rooted in the Son of God tasting death for us and then rising again. A hope that's rooted in a real person. Jesus Christ, God and man, who actually literally died. Who was put in a real tomb and was dead for three days. And then literally came back to life. That's hope. And it's it's not ethereal, and it's not something that we can't Get our minds and our hearts around it is real and true, and it actually happened. My original plan of what to preach on was to, to think about the witnesses that we've been reading about in the New Testament. I invite you into an experiment of the five senses. What did the disciples see? What did they hear? What did they touch? You can you even think about what did they smell and taste? What were all of the that was involved in that moment that helped them to see that this was real, that it actually happened, that they were witnesses that that saw and heard and touched and knew that this was a deep, true reality. We have a certain hope because Jesus has gone before us. Jesus is the first fruits from the dead, and his resurrection is greater than the one we read about here in Lazarus. The resurrection of Lazarus is strange, isn't it? Can you imagine being there This guy comes out tied up and he's got this cloth over his face and looks almost like some sort of a mummy. Is that what the resurrection of Jesus is like? Not at all. Jesus emerges not bound by grave clothes because he was not bound by an earthly body anymore. Jesus is the first fruits from the dead, meaning that when he came out, he came out free from an earthly body but now has this glorified body and that he is the first group of that. He is the first one to have this resurrected body. And he proclaims that that is what we have. And he proclaims that he is the resurrection and the life. And this morning, I think he looks into our eyes as a were, and he says, in your sorrow and in your confusion and in your frustration, do you still believe this? Do you believe that I'm working all things for good and for my glory? Do you believe that I can raise you? On the last day? Do you believe that there is a true, sure, solid hope in the face of death? The resurrection of Jesus is so significant. And it's so significant because death is so sure. It is so true. It is so real. And it will happen to each and every one of us. And so while death continues to happen, we will still be filled with sorrow. We will still be confused. We will still get angry sometimes. And we'll feel emotions even beyond that. But the promise of Jesus' resurrection is also the promise of his return. He was exalted. And the angels that said he has risen also were the ones that said he's coming again. And so one day he will return. And one day death and hell. Revelation tells us we'll be thrown into the lake of fire. Death has been conquered because Jesus conquered sin. But death still exists in this world. Until that day. Until the day that Jesus takes death and hell and throws them into the lake of fire. And then we're told, in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more sorrow. No more confusion no more anger because there will be no more death ever. That is our hope and it's a sure and solid hope because Jesus has risen from the